if we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Fall is upon us, and we're back into the normal routines that we're used to, and let one of those normal routines be your health and wellness. Who better to help you with that than Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition? You can reach out to her on Facebook at Rise Menominee, and she'll get you started accomplishing all of your health and wellness goals. Again, that's Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. Hey friends, I am your host, Matt Kinzara. Good to be with you today. One of my frustrations over the years is just that in church, sometimes we don't talk about things that are going on in the world that really matter right now. So today on the show, I've got ethicist, pastor, author, and advocate, Dr. David Gushy. I'm David Gushy. I am a professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, and I kind of have lived two professional lives in a, in a sense, the, the professional ethicist, and now more recently, kind of the evangelical exile writing about evangelicalism. I'm also a pastor, I'm an ordained Baptist pastor. I've been doing church work since I was in college, so that's part of my story as well. Can you share a little bit, David, about your faith background, what you grew up in? You said you were a Baptist pastor as well, which I'm sure is an interesting bent to the story. And then yeah. even maybe a little bit about where you are now. I grew up Catholic in Virginia, Northern Virginia. My mom was Irish Catholic, so deep ancestral Catholicism there. Dad was more of a lapsed Quaker. But Catholicism didn't work for me at, at that young age. I abandoned it, wandered in the, in the spiritual wilderness, um, met a Southern Baptist girl. It's, there's always a girl. Always it's a, a girl. That's always how it happens, right? That's right. You know, kind of on my own, though, when she was out of town, wandered into a Southern Baptist church. When Southern Baptists were known for evangelism and leading people to Jesus in a born-again experience, not about politics, right? And I was very receptive they had the right people in the right place at the right time. And four days after I wandered into that church on a Friday afternoon, I was a born-again Christian. That was when I was in high school. And it really took, it stuck. It worked for me, and I was discipled very effectively. So I was now deeply Southern Baptist. Within six months, I felt called to be a Baptist pastor. After William Mary, where I went to school and majored in religion, uh, I went to Southern Baptist Seminary. And I would have probably ended up being, well, I would have been a Southern Baptist pastor until everything blew up, but I fell hard for academia at seminary, including especially the discipline of Christian ethics. And so 
I added on top of my seminary degree a PhD in Christian ethics. And so I've been kind of pursuing, you know, both the ministry side and the academic side since then. That was in the late 80s, early 90s. I've taught at three different Baptist-related schools, each one more progressive than the one before. And Mercer is now where I've been for 14 years. You know, in terms of church life now, I'm, I'm just a regular member in a, in a little Baptist church not too far from me here in Atlanta. Uh, for the first time, I'm not really trying to be in charge of anything in the church. For the first time since, I don't know, well, first time since high school, I guess. David, we've all heard the term ethics, ethicist, but for somebody who's wondering what that looks like in a career path, could you just define that yeah. a little bit before we jump into it a little deeper? Sure, yeah. There's, I mean, there's different academic fields where ethics has a part, like, you know, there's nursing ethics, there's business ethics, there's whatever. There's philosophical ethics, but mine is Christian ethics, and I usually further specify to say Christian social ethics. So I have focused on major social, political, and moral issues in what the Christian faith has to say about them, both to speak to the world, but also uh, to help Christians be faithful disciples of Jesus in the real world as we find it. So I've written about things like war and human rights, sex, marriage, family, some bioethics stuff. So it's, it's, you might say Christian ethics is where the faith meets the world. What do we have to say to the world about what Christianity teaches? And what do we have to say about what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus in, in these areas of life? One of the things that I've always been a little bit frustrated at is it seems like when there's a major event or a major something going on in the world. So many times the churches that I was engaged with would seemingly just turn a blind eye to it or wouldn't engage in a conversation about it. You know, something huge would happen in our world that everybody's talking about. And then the pastor at the church would give the sermon that he'd been planning for six months, just because we don't want to get off track with our sermon oh, yeah. series or Got whatever. Our sermon series going, you know, uh, Meteor may be coming in, in three days. But <laughs> we're going to have our sermon on, uh, you know, Romans three or whatever. <laughs> It just totally felt like that. But in my mind, I just think if our faith is going to mean anything, it has to have some sort of relevance in these major issues of our world. And there's so many of them right now. Uh, what are some of the things that are on, on your mind right now that are going on in our world that you're digging into in regards to your faith and kind of real world happenings? Well, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of uh, I'm teaching right now a class on the Christian tradition on war and peace. There's 2,000 years of arguments about whether Christians should fight in wars and what our attitude should be about violence and when the state asks us to go to war, or when the state asks us to register for the draft, um, or when the president decides to remove troops from Afghanistan, and all of a sudden people remember that we are at war in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, I think a lot of times the reason pastors don't know what to say is because, well, nobody gave them any tools for thinking about the complexities of those issues plus they're not following the news closely enough to really know what's going on so that i'm also teaching a class on genocide which is the effort to destroy entire human populations and my dissertation was on the holocaust and i've paid close attention to issues of genocide ever since i wrote a book on lgbt inclusion that had a huge <laughs> impact some people loved it some people hated it 
but I, I'm always following issues of kind of is the church being able to open its heart and its mind to LGBTQ people or not, you know, and so that's always on my agenda. Race, I've done a lot of thinking about our racial issues in the last, you know, my whole career, but it's really been intense the last five, six years. So those are some examples of things that I'm working on. The topics that you just mentioned are on just about everybody's mind almost constantly. And so then to step into a faith community and feel as if there's no conversation going around those issues, it's just unfortunate because I do believe that our faith should inform our decision-making on so many of those things. And I want to key in on, because this is something that's been on my mind, is this idea of war, but also peace, kind of that contradiction. And we follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I myself really struggle with the concept of war, but I know a lot of other you know, people of faith don't struggle with it in the same way that I do. So for those out there who are people who just believe desperately in peace, but also it's really difficult to come against wars in some ways because of that feeling of protecting ourselves or protecting our liberties or whatnot, what is a step one that we can take to start having that conversation? I think the step one is to become aware of the major options that have developed in 2,000 years of Christian tradition and the major reasons that people have developed. Really smart scholars and church leaders have developed for those options, and, and those are basically pacifism came first for Christians because of the example and teaching of Jesus, the earliest church uh, really exuded a nonviolent commitment, and there's no evidence of Christians serving in anybody's military, at least until the late second century, hmm. 150 years after Jesus. And, but then gradually, the idea that, well, maybe we should participate along with others in the defense of the places where we live, developed and eventually became systematized in what was called just war theory. And just war theory, which was especially developed by St. Augustine, and then went on after that, is basically the idea that under some circumstances, it is the just and even loving thing to do to take up arms uh, to defend innocent people from violence. And the same reasoning would support both policing and war. During the Middle Ages, <clears throat> a kind of an aberration developed that, that said, you know, sometimes not only is war sadly necessary, sometimes it's a positive good especially in the name of God. And so this is sometimes called the crusade tradition. We're killing the infidel in the name of God. That's generally, you know, been rejected since really the 18th century. But I still think this kind of killing for our side is holy is still there. It's in the bloodstream of Christianity. And then the most recent theory to develop is the idea that what Christians should be about is proactive, creative peacemaking, kind of diplomacy and interpersonal and group efforts to find ways to resolve conflicts without violence. So pacifism has a lot of peacemaking in it. Just War Theory, at its best, has a lot of peacemaking in it. But what just peacemaking or peace building theory emphasizes is where Christians can make the most constructive differences in creative problem solving and intervening to help people think in some fresh ways about the conflicts that might lead them to violence. So when you talk about this, it's almost like a, a full circle idea. It's almost as if we're at least moving back towards 
at least a conversation about pacifism a little bit, almost a new version of pacifism when you describe it. Kind of, yeah. And pacifism itself has surged in the 20th century, partly because of all the violence of the 20th century. World War I triggered a new round of pacifism. World War II did as well afterwards. The development of weapons of mass destruction that could annihilate millions and millions and millions of people in a day. If we really unleash all the weapons that we have at any point, there will not be much left but smoking ruins. One of the main reasons why an emphasis on we have to find ways to solve our problems between countries without resorting to war has become such a major idea in the latter part of the 20th century and in the time that we're in now. You know, it's almost as if we're trying to, to dig down more towards the root of the problem as opposed to just trying to annihilate one another. Right. Um, and you can see how, like, if you have these tools, these conceptual tools, then when it's August and our country is is leaving Afghanistan and there's, everybody's paying attention to it, maybe the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, the, the college teacher could interrupt whatever they're planning to do to talk about. Let's talk about what the Christian tradition in the Bible says about war and see if we can have some, some comments to be made about the situation that we're facing. I think that sometimes it comes down to inadequate education or an inadequate application of education if our ministers don't feel like they have anything they can say to situations like this. One of the problems I have with that, David, is so, <laughs> there's so much of like our evangelical faith, I would say, that's kind of rooted in this um, military dialogue in the ways that we talk. And so much of what I remember from my earlier days in the evangelical church is there was a lot of attention given to people like King David and a lot of attention given to the Old Testament concept that not that war was good, but that God justified war and that the people that were really great leaders in war times were lifted up in David's case as like a man after God's heart, you know? So how do we, how do we take Jesus as the Prince of Peace, David as this huge war hero, and how do we have any sort of coherent conversation that doesn't just bring in all of our biases? Because if I'm a person that is pro-guns, pro-military, well, David's my guy. If I'm a person that's uh, a pacifist, well, you know, then Jesus, Prince of Peace is what I'm going to talk about. So how do we have that conversation in a valid way? You know, one thing that's really interesting is that as you look, I mean, I'm in this deep dive and my students are in this deep dive and how these arguments have been made in Christianity for 2000 years. This is not a new problem. Like when theologians have been looking for resources for like defending war even crusades the old testament war people is where they go right they go to joshua or they go to to david and you know there's all kinds of warriors in the old testament all kinds of war fighting or even the idea that yahweh is a warrior right you know it's mm -hmm. god is the one who fights our battles for us you know, could even go to Revelation and talk about when Jesus comes back, he's also going to be a warrior. You know, there's yeah, so many ways you can spin it. That's right. The tradition at its best, let's just say this, it's not Christian if Jesus is not the center of the conversation. And if Jesus is the very center of the conversation, the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels, the Jesus who says, turn the other cheek and love your enemy, forgive uh, those who have offended you, Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. If he's at the center of the conversation, there's always going to be some checks, or should be, on our tendency to want to go rah-rah related to violence. Because the Jesus we meet in the, in the Gospels does not give us anything but, I think, contradictory 
information and, and uh, teaching to that. So beware the churches in which Jesus seems to disappear when you most need him because he's kind of inconvenient to the, you know, either militarism or ideology of the moment, you know? And in my new book, After Evangelicalism, I talk about um, about which versions of Jesus are people operating from. And I think that we do better if we are never too far from the Jesus we meet in the Gospels. And that's a great pivot point because on this podcast, we're not afraid to get after the evangelical movement or the evangelical church a little bit and point out some of the big challenges. And, and you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody because I worked in that space for about 15 years, you know. And so there was a time in my life where I just had to kind of lament things that I've preached or things that I've said, or even didn't say in those situations. Um, and I think at most of the people that listen to this podcast, if they would see the title of your book after evangelicalism, a new path to a new Christianity, I think that would get a lot of people excited because I th- we want to believe that there's a new way. We want to believe that there's a better way. So outline a little bit about what your goals with this book are or were when you were getting ready to write it. The backstory is I was probably one of the three leading evangelical ethicists for about 20 years. I spoke everywhere. I wrote for Christianity Today. If you know any obscure Christian college anywhere, I was probably there for their chapel service at one time or another from 1994 to 2014. So, you know, National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Today, Biola, Wheaton, Calvin, Gordon, man, Mount Vernon, Nazarene University. I've been there. I've been everywhere. And there's a lot to love about uh, heart and soul evangelical people. I mean, I, how many worship services have I been at? How many how many earnest Bible studies? You know, in other words, I, I don't want to disrespect everything about the tradition, right? And I want to honor the contribution it made in my life. I always thought of myself as kind of progressive, center-left evangelical. I never identified with Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Christian right side. That was never me. But I always thought that there was a secure space for center-left type evangelicals, people of more progressive political commitments, and people who are more kind of uh, open-minded on things like science and climate and women's roles, you know, just not so hardline right-wing. You know, sometimes when we're hurt by something, we're so tempted to want to just move on and throw all of it away. And I too would, would identify that there was so much good that I experienced inside of the evangelical church as well. And so we, we need to hang on to the goodness of that as we move forward as well. And in fact, you know, I think that as people move into a post-evangelical space, like in a lot of other religious transitions for people, they have to decide, am I going to set my face as an adversary against everybody and everything I was once involved with, or am I going to try to retrieve some of that at least and carry it forward into something better, something that works better for me now? But anyway, my story is that my commitments to justice and peace and inclusion had me running as an ethicist, had me running consistently up against very powerful voices in the evangelical establishment. And like a lot of other people, I began to wonder whether 
conservative white American evangelicalism was really more about conservative whiteness and politics and republicanism than it was about Jesus. And when I wrote my book, Changing Our Mind in 2014, was gently, step by step, made the case for LGBT inclusion in the church, the evangelical establishment came down on me hard the way that it knows how to do against dissenters. I thought that my stature in the evangelical community meant that I could be initiating a conversation, but instead it was more like you are out of a conversation now because you went too far. That was where my traumatizing happened was after 2014. A lot of broken friendships, broken relationships, contracts, speaking appearances, a lot of hurt. But finally, it, it led me to want to ask, is there something wrong at the heart of at least white American evangelicalism? And what might be on the other side of that? And so the book After Evangelicalism kind of probes the major reasons why people are leaving evangelicalism behind and proposes a kind of a theological and moral vision for life on the other side. The fundamental purpose of the book is pastoral in one sense, because I would like as many people as possible to not give up on Jesus and not give up on Christian community, even if they give up on evangelical Christian community. And I hope it's therapeutic in the sense that people could say, ah, so, you know, well, that's where I got snagged, that's where I got hurt, but I can still follow Jesus and not have to deal with that because I can come out on the other side of that, you know? So the book rethinks theology. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, church. It also looks at some moral issues like politics, race, and sex. But it also deals with questions of scripture and method how do we know what we know and i think from what i'm hearing from people from around the world it appears to be helping a lot of people to come out on the other side still loving jesus still identifying as christians and maybe able to put the evangelical thing behind them without being focused on the bitterness yeah i find unfortunately in so many of what's kind of becoming known as the deconstruction space that for lack of better words, it gets really angsty really fast. And a lot of the books, podcasts that you'll read about kind of post-evangelicalism, they tend to be so negative and focus so much on what was wrong. And I think there's a, a time and space for that. I think we do have to mourn and identify the spaces that hurt us or that we struggled with. But then there has to be this, this time in our lives. I know in my life, there was a time when I just wasn't too happy with the person I was becoming because I was so angry at so much about evangelicalism and church. And I eventually got to this point where I said, I got to I got to decide what I'm for, what I want to walk towards, because this guy that just is so angry at what he's walking away from isn't the person that I want to be in life. And so I love the concept of your book is not just looking at maybe what we're struggling with, but also giving a better way. I think the book is being recognized as at least one of the major places where somebody's proposing what we should believe instead. The term that I propose for an overall vision in the book is a, intentionally provocative. It's Christian humanist. Hmm. And by that, I mean uh, a number of different things that pull some strands together. It's a, it's a certain understanding of Jesus, which includes his earthly mission of the kingdom of God and not just him dying on the cross for our sins, or not just the Jesus who kind of ratifies what middle-class white people want to be about in the world and just slaps some Jesus on that, right? You know? So there's a certain substantive understanding of Jesus, 
and, and his humanity and his concern for the suffering and dignity of all people. So that's part of what I mean by humanism. And I also mean a concern for the well-being of the whole human family, a kind of a, an open-hearted, loving and serving vision as opposed to a kind of a defensive, brittle vision that you often get in evangelicalism. It's all about, we're right, they're wrong, we got to stay pure and stay away from those pagans who don't believe the right things the way that we do, right? I also emphasize that there are ways to learn truth in the world besides the Bible. Though the Bible remains central for Christians, I call us to take seriously other sources of human knowledge and to not position ourselves as skeptical of every other way of knowing anything, right? I think that's a big problem in intellectual life of evangelicalism. And just a general posture of, of humaneness towards those maybe with whom we disagree or who are not in our community, sometimes Christians are some of the meanest people that you know. Because, I don't know, Jesus teaching about love your neighbor doesn't seem to apply if you disagree with them religiously or something. I saw a cartoon once that said, there's no hate like good Christian love. <laughs> <laughs> you come across, David, as somebody, again, unlike a lot of people in this space, when I talk to you, you seem very, very hopeful, which is refreshing and wonderful and beautiful, you know, because our world doesn't feel all that hopeful right now. Christianity sometimes doesn't feel all that hopeful, at least from an organized standpoint. So where's that hope coming from and where are you seeing hope in our world today? What am I hopeful about? Oddly, I think that all of this deconstructive stuff is exposing the ways in which white evangelicalism has left the path of Jesus. And it is really, really hard to deny that evidence. I think that the Trump years, just to call them, say, 2015 until today, in a lot of ways, have been unveiling about some things that are not healthy in white American evangelicalism. And a lot of good research has happened to name the specifics. So when you don't have any illusions, at least you're not operating from illusion, you're operating from clarity. Also, another thing that gives me hope is this post-evangelical space, the podcast space, some churches, scholars, conferences. This space is developing now, getting some clarity and getting some resources. That gives me hope. I've encountered a number of churches that have made the transition from evangelical to post-evangelical, and they're, they're going to be okay. And also, there are some mainline-type churches that are becoming very hospitable spaces for post-evangelicals, and that's cool too, right? I also think that in the post-evangelical space, the racial and patriarchal issues, in a sense, it's explicitly, the post-evangelicals, most that I know, are explicitly committed to overcoming that. And so it's becoming a more egalitarian space, a multiracial space. People are reading more widely. They're encountering people across differences that used to be uh, difficult to do on the evangelical side. And so I think that's actually what the church should look like anyway, right? So that, that gives me hope. So fine scholarship, some promising churches, an ending of our illusions, and um, maybe that makes it easier to say goodbye and to say hello to something better. Special thanks to Dr. David Gushy for being on this episode of the Jesus Never Ran podcast. The book is After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity. And here's the exciting news. 
Everybody listening can get a 40% discount, not only on this book, but on all of David's books. If you just go to the link in the show notes, you heard that right. 40% off all of David's books. So jump on that right away. The podcast is called the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. So make sure you go subscribe to that podcast and give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. And then finally, go to David's website. That's where you can get more information on everything he has going on. And that website is simply davidpgushy.com. And gushy is G-U-S-H-E-E. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time.